Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. Good to see you. For those of you watching online, good to have you as well. If you're a guest with us, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, the guy that on most occasions has the high privilege of opening God's Word, and I'm going to get to do that today as well. Join me in Revelation chapter 19. So as a church family, we're on the home stretch now of this series that we began all the way back in January called Unveiled Glory, moving verse by verse through John's revelation of Jesus to seven suffering churches. And we've seen, I think, some just powerful messages around the unveiling of him and how that alleviates so much fear and pain, how it readies us for the world that's in front of us as well as that world that is to come. And today, as we get toward the end of these descriptions, I want to invite you to just share this message. There is so much hope. I know the last couple of weeks in here, we've been talking about some hard stuff, haven't we? Because God's Word has revealed just some really hard stuff, and sometimes God has to tell us things that hurt in order to to be truthful with us because He loves us. And nobody who loves you is ever going to lie to you. They're always going to tell you the truth, even if it hurts. And we've seen that here. And, And I promised you, once we get through the hard stuff, Hope is coming, and today we start to see that hope break through, and so this is the greatest news in the universe that is going to, the way this is going to conclude today. So if you want to share this message on social media, whatever, let me just encourage you to do that. Uh, I will warn you, though, right at the first, the pictures that we're going to have, the sort of final uh, symbolic visions that we see in Revelation are more colorful, and they're more raw, and they're more graphic, frankly, than anything we've seen before. Actually, the ESV, which is the version that I'm using here, has a mild rendering with this woman who we see. She's a prostitute. If you have an NIV or a King James, uh, they use actually the more accurate, really strong word. They use harlot. They use whore. And so we're starting to see like not only these really stark images, but really salty kind of descriptions, things that we wouldn't think would be polite in, in, in society, right? This isn't appropriate for polite society, but the pictures are more graphic because as we move toward the end, the challenges are more in your face. What's starting to emerge is a clear contrast between these two cities that have been graphically described in the imagery. Babylon on the one hand and the New Jerusalem on the other. And the graphic nature of all these descriptions, that remember the, the purpose of apocalypse. This is what Eugene Peterson taught us very early in this series together. Apocalypse has at its root uh, intent, the, the igniting of the emotions in a way that more greatly fuels the intellect. So we don't want to just know truth, we want to feel it. And we want to feel it at the deepest level of the reality being conveyed. And so if you brought a friend today, and especially if that friend is not a Christian, and you are hearing everything I've said just thus far, and you're thinking, oh Lord, one time I finally got my friend to come to church and Pastor Joel's going to get weird. I'm not. Okay, so let me just go ahead and say to your friend, we do not at Covenant believe that there is a literal prostitute riding a literal beast in the literal ocean, okay? We don't believe that's, that was John's intent when he wrote this letter, and here we go with, we go with authorial intent. We want to go with, we believe the scriptures are inspired of God, we believe those authors were inspired of God, and therefore we believe their intent was inspired. So we're going to go with their intent, and so what John's doing here is he's not telling us there's some literal figure out there, but he's using this symbolic figure to describe something that is actually just as real as I am, just as real as you are, but that in the Western world we don't often pay a whole lot of attention to, and that's the spiritual forces behind the curtain, okay? That, yeah, maybe I am getting a little weird today. That stuff's real. Okay, that stuff's real right now. That stuff's real. Some of you experienced this this past week. Family dysfunction, problems at work, money issues, marriage issues, kids acting crazy, whatever's going on with you, you experience. And behind the scenes, more than likely, there were spiritual forces at work. There are spiritual forces at work at this moment as I'm preaching, as you are sitting there. Some of them are going to follow you home, and because you are a Westerner, you're not even going to be aware of it unless you're more proactive spiritually. 
They're just, they, and, and so this section is intended to wake you up with that reality. Very real forces. If you don't believe me, let me just ask you. Like, if you actually believe the scriptures are true, you believe all those stories are true, all right? And we, th- those of us who are leaders, especially at Covenant, we, we believe all of that. So, so if we believe that, I mean, what happened to all that spiritual stuff we saw? All that miraculous, all that demonic activity, all, that, all those spiritual forces that were at work in the Bible. What do you, what do you think happened to those, those forces? You think they just migrated to North Africa and the Middle East and they're leaving us alone because we got vaccines and internet? Like, like you, you really think that's the case? Like that, Those forces are at work in even more sinister ways here because we don't sense them. And it's passages like this that wake us up to those forces. There is a whore being destroyed. And we can take great hope in that. Conversely, there is a bride about to be joined to her groom. And furthermore, neither you nor I are a mere spectator to all of this, nor are we neutral. As you sit there in your seat on your blessed assurance, you are on a side. That's the message here. You are on a side by your life, by where you put your faith, by where you keep your focus, by whether or not you're obeying and walking in obedience, whether you have identified either with Babylon or the new Jerusalem. There's the whore, there's the bride, and you're going to have to pick one. That's the big idea today. And, and so this is not, when, you, when we read some of the language here, don't think that this is an excuse to have a potty mouth, okay? That there, there, this doesn't mean that we don't respect polite society, all right? Shock value eventually loses its value to shock if it just becomes every other word coming out of your mouth. Don't you agree? And, and so this is the lesson here, okay? But the other side, though, is let's not be afraid of this language, This is language God chose. Let's not try to be more holy than God. Let's lean into what's being said here. Because I want you to know this truth, guys. I want you to feel it. I want it to motivate you toward God. And it is a truth involving two destinies, starting with the great prostitute. Now, in order for us to do that, let's back up a couple of chapters. Let me just remind you of some some context. This is not the first time we saw this woman. We saw a vision of her two chapters earlier in chapter 17. In verse 4, Of that chapter, we read the following. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. So so the angel takes John out of the wilderness, this setting, and he sees this woman riding on the beast, and he marvels. He's astonished, all right? When you get into the grammar of the Greek, and and you actually start to discover what this word means, it means she's attractive to him. Gets John out there. John sees this woman, and John's first response, reflexively, is to be hypnotized by her, to be seduced by her. So it's like the angel takes him out into the wilderness. He sees this woman and he gets enthralled and he's marveled. And it's like, he's going, wow, she's fine. And it's like the angel's got to go, eyes up. up. I didn't bring you out here to ogle her. I brought you out here to tell you about the truth behind her. And and so that's what's what's going on here. I, I want you to know that this woman rides the beast. I want you to know that her sole function is to get you to move your focus from the worship of Jesus to the worship of Caesar. And she makes that option look very attractive. So yeah, she's fine. She's also deadly. She's like a black widow. You got to watch out for her. So here, here's the question I have for us, just knowing that background. If John, the beloved... You remember who this guy is? This is the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus. The guy who was that intimate with his Lord could be captivated, diverted, distracted, hypnotized by that kind of attraction. Are we so foolish as to think that we're immune to it? To that same attraction? What makes us think we're immune to it? I think, I think, back over a year ago, because remember, this isn't primarily even about sex. You read verses 13 and 14, it's about power. It's about Christians assuming, well, if we'll just get the power of the state, then everything will be okay. And then we start putting our 
our hope and our faith in political figures. And this one's got to happen. Pulpits preached that nonsense just about a year and a half ago. And here's what we're learning over and over and over again. That ain't the spirit. That's the whore. And she's beckoning you. She's beckoning you toward immorality, toward power, toward influence. And, and they're, they're, they're attractive, alluring things. And so, so to a church that would continue to be tempted with similar things, and with that background in view, we're going to see today the end of that prostitute. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on the blood of his servants. Okay? So this judgment is just for a couple of reasons. Number one, because she corrupted the earth. Like everything this woman does leads to greater depravity, greater destruction, greater toxicity, greater division, greater violence. And she does it at root with immoral behavior. The word there is porneia. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we get our word pornography from it. And, and it really is a junk drawer term, if you will. It just describes any and all kind of, there, there's a word for immorality, there's a word for uh, fornication, there's a word for adultery. There are words very clear, contrary to what you've heard with liberal theologians, describing homosexuality. There, there are very specific words used in scripture. This one's kind of a generic sort of cover-all word. It describes any and all forms of sexual deviancy. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit anticipated that you and I would develop a list and then our minds would be so deviant that we would find something not on that list and go jump into bed with that thinking that's okay. And the Lord is saying here, nope, anything, anything other than the way I have explicitly described to you is wrong. I'm not making a list of things you can't do and the reason I'm not doing that is because you're so perverted you'll just invent something not on the list. Okay, And so porneia, how about this for God-inspired? Porneia is a 2,000-year-old pre-technology word that speaks with scalpel-like accuracy to our post-technology world. Right? What I look at on my phone is not a big deal. What I look at on the computer is not a big deal. Yeah, you better check yourself because that stuff's going to destroy you. Okay. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, you've, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Whoever looks on a woman with lustful intent is guilty of adultery. What, what is it? What's he saying there? Like, is he drawing a tighter line? Nope, nope. He's not drawing lines at all. He's pointing at your heart and mine. That's what he's doing. All right. So young, young people that I've had come to me over the years, and you know, forget about young people. Did you know the greatest amount of STDs today is in retirement homes? Like, that's a nice thought, isn't it? Like, I was, but, but you, I'm like, hey, people of all ages now, what about you? Like, where's the line? You're like, hey, pastor, where's the line? I mean, we didn't actually like, you know, do it. Like, what, you mean you didn't have intercourse? All right, what am I talking to Bill Clinton? What do you, what, we didn't actually do this. We didn't actually do that. We didn't, like, I, <laughs> you're asking the wrong questions. Because the questions reveal a heart that says, I want to go right to the line. Because your first commitment is to your own pleasure rather than actually the glory of Jesus. You're like, what do I need to do in order to, in order to love the Lord? And then, of course, the other side of that is all this legalistic nonsense, you know. How many of you went to a school where if you wore a skirt and they measured and it was 1.08 inches above the knee, you know, they acted like you were making every kid in the building lust and they sent you home and they shamed you. and they did. See, That's the other side of that. It, every bit of that nonsense is about drawing lines. And, and what God is saying is, I'm looking at your heart. I want to know where your first allegiance is. Because if your first allegiance is to me, you won't ask questions like that. You'll live in the freedom of the gospel and you'll please me. Okay? Behind every bit of that temptation is a prostitute. And she promotes sinful decay of the world by immoral behavior. She's the reason that you and I live in a culture that rightfully advocates me too, because it needs to, and God forgive us for some of the things we've done to women in this country, but simultaneously praises 50 shades of gray and thinks itself philosophically and morally consistent in doing so. You know where that comes from? The whore. 
That's where it comes from. Well, we can do all this. We can do it. You know, where else? you know what she invented? She invented something called the morality of consent. No, no more need to talk about covenant. No more need to talk about marriage. No more need to talk about doing this. God, hey, just know the difference between yes and no. That's simple enough, right? Well, it would seem so on the surface. What's that gotten us? You tell me. Where's that taking our mental health? Where, where is that taking our society as a whole? Where is that taking the trust level between men and women, between brothers and sisters even? The morality of consent just induces, I mean, it just introduces more moral confusion. Every bit of this is brought decay, which means that this judgment is righteous. It is secondly eternal. Verse 3, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. So both the verdict and the punishment are irreversible and they're unceasing. This woman symbolically describing the powers of the earth. She's going to go away, and she's never coming back. And, and then there's something here that really, if you're sensitive to what the text is saying, really ought to trouble your soul a little bit. Her judgment is praised. In, in verse 4, we read, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne a voice came, saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, this is three times in five verses you see this phrase, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And, and it, it, it should be unsettling because of what it's reacting. It's reacting to the end of something, the end of several somebodies, actually, who've been complicit in all this behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, at first glance, it kind of reads like ding-dong, the witch is dead. And, and, and we, gotta, we have to balance that, what we read there, and it's going to cause a little bit of struggle if you're honest with the whole Bible, right? Because God says in Ezekiel, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would repent. Is it, is it really proper to celebrate the end of an individual? And then, now not to make it any more complicated, but read this verse in the 58th Psalm, which, by the way, Almost every time I've ever done a wedding, and my wife is telling me this is really getting old and i got to stop it. Um, but it, I have fun. I tell the, I tell the, the people at the, at the rehearsal, right? So the bride and the groom are standing up in front of me, and we're going step by step through what's going to happen. And I say, okay, this is the point in the service where I'm going to read some Scripture. And I have a perfect Scripture for the two of you and the future of your marriage. It's in the 58th Psalm, and, and I just thought of you two. It reads like this, Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. And the young couple's like, uh, okay. Yeah. And my wife, because it's like a 487th time I've done this, just rolling her eyes. So, but, but what is that? That's called an imprecatory psalm. That's a prayer for God to destroy your enemies. It's like one minute, love your enemies. The next minute, we say, right. So we, we got to be careful here, Okay. And we've got to guard our own hearts. We've got to remain self-aware. Otherwise, we're going to turn unrighteous. We're going to develop a kind of selfish, self-righteous anger toward other people. That's not what's in view here. But when the whole of Scripture is considered, it looks kind of like this. We're being reminded by John that to hate sin and what it does, and conversely to love justice and to long for God to bring it, is a righteous desire. Okay, like hate is wrong. No, it's not. Always. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. You can hate people because of the color of their skin. You can hate people because they follow another religion. You can hate people who are just different from you. You can hate the person whose vote cast out yours in the last election. And yeah, every bit of that is wicked, awful, demonic hate. But the same people who talk about hate, stop hate, stop hate. You're like, whoa, think a minute. Stop hate. You, so you don't you don't hate abuse. You don't hate injustice. You don't, let, let's engage our brains before we open our mouths. Let, let's do a little bit of thinking here. And so, and so that's what we're being told, right? The angel says, I want to take you back to this prostitute one more time because she is a seductress and she's better at this than you think she is. She's a symbol of everything humanity can build when we live in rebellion. And it's actually quite impressive. It's almost an allusion back to the Tower of Babel. We'll get to that actually later when we get toward the end of, closer to the end of Revelation. But, but this was the first century church. They look around, you've got Rome. You've got opulence and beauty and power and wealth and comfort. And it, 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 it'll have you think, wow, this is a good life. That woman is fine, but she's also deadly. 
Do not share in her faith, in her fate. And this is why, just on another note, just so you can hear your pastor's heart for a minute, because I, I know throughout this series, I've made fun of certain takes on this book. I will admit to you, some of that is because I have fun doing that. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. I've had a dark sense of humor or what it is, whatever it is. I, but, but some of these janky interpretations of Revelation, like you look at a text like that and you go, okay, this is China and this is the Middle East and this is Russia. And like, like since this whole Russian Ukraine, some of y'all been trying to cram that in here and it don't fit, right? And I'm not, it, it's not that I'm angry with you, it's I'm concerned about your soul. And if you keep pressing that crap in, which by the way, that way of looking at this book, it's only been around for about 200 years. If something is new, chances are better than average, it ain't true. Just going to throw that out there, okay? You can, keep, you can still disagree with me if you want to, but here's the concern of my soul, of, for your soul. It's that you keep focusing on this person or that person, or it's the Muslims, or it's the LGBT community, or it's this country, or it's this culture, and in the meanwhile, you're, you're missing that the Spirit of God, through this vision of this whore, he's aiming at your heart. And you're going to miss it because you're going to think yourself somehow outside of that or, God forbid, even above it. And you're going to miss the loving call of God to repent and to be made right with him. And you're going to be excused from having the courage that God expects of his people during difficult days. The goal is to get you to see the allure of this present world, the power, the influence, the sensuality it offers, to see with abundant clarity how it all ends a haunt for every kind of wicked thing as we saw last week and so so you can rightly look at this woman that john reflexively was like oh wow man she's she looks good and instead empowered by the spirit of god you can go wow that's nasty i can't believe i ever wanted to be with her that that's the picture I told you it was graphic rejecting that identity that allure means you have chosen another path that is the destiny not of the prostitute but of the bride so let's keep reading in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, <coughs> for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this is a biblical description of the spiritual reality behind what we have commonly called the marriage supper of the Lamb, okay? This is the consummate arrival of God's kingdom, and it's described to us using the language of a Jewish wedding feast. And we have precedent for this. It's not the first time we've seen this in Scripture. Jesus, when he was on the earth, was the first one to use this picture as an example, picture of the wedding feast. In Matthew chapter 22, read the whole uh, parable, 14 verses long when you get home this afternoon. But I want you to see a common description in these two passages. And, and to do that, let's look at Matthew 22, 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. That, that was mean. Right, where, where'd that come from? Well, these feasts were a big deal. And they sometimes went on for days. And they were joyous occasions, unlimited food and wine, and it was just partying day and night for like a week. And everybody was invited, but you had to dress for the occasion. And if you didn't dress for the occasion, you weren't welcome there. You just weren't. I mean, goodness, even, even in our own culture, we recognize if it's going to be a formal wedding, most weddings that I've done have not been all, oh, Pastor, just show up however you want to be dressed. I've, I've married some of you wearing a tux. I have married some of you wearing a robe. I have married some of you wearing a suit with a tie that the bride gave me because it matched all the dresses, right? It was, I'm, I'm pretty cooperative when it comes to that kind of thing I under, because I understand, right? There's a, there's a certain kind of expectation. Even in West by God, Virginia, if the best man shows up in flip-flops and a tuxedo t-shirt, that ain't cool. You can't do that. Right? There's got to be a level of presentation here. There's a time and a, and a place for all of this stuff. Jesus is saying, be ready. And, in order, and, and, and the way he's saying be ready is he's saying, you, the bridegroom is coming, you better get dressed. 
you better get ready for this. Don't let me come and find you with tattered clothing. Now, watch this. Okay, hang with me for just a few minutes here because this is, I, I told you a couple weeks ago, hope is coming, right? What I'm about to say, it's the best news you've ever heard in your life. It's the, there's not a better story in the universe than the one I'm about to tell you. I'm sure there's a lot of guys, I'm quite certain there's a lot of guys tell this story better than me, but there's not a better gospel in the universe. So listen up, okay? Even through this imperfect guy, okay? The same language is being used here in Revelation 19. Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You, you become part of the bride in one way. It must be granted to you. It must be granted to you. So you, you got no clothes for this. You got no clothes for this. This is, it starts with some very bad news about your hopelessness. You can't get ready. Isaiah, the prophet, since we're on the subject of graphic language today, says that your righteousness, my righteousness, everything we do to try to make ourselves acceptable to God, he says it's like filthy rags. In the ancient world, that language was used to describe feminine products that had been used and thrown in the trash can. The Lord is saying to you and to me, on your best day, that's all I see. And you want to show up to a wedding with all that? That's all I see. I mean, you've you got a closet that is full of just tattered old garments that are ripped to shreds, and you ain't ever sent nothing to the dry cleaners ever. It was granted her. Yeah. Do you hear the hope in that? Yeah. It's like, hey, what, how do I get dressed? How do I? You got nothing. But here's the hope. You come to Jesus, and he says, I have clothes for you. I'll give you what you need. I will dress you before I wed you. I will ready you for my coming. That's his promise to you today if you turn to him. And the reason he can do it is because he is a powerful, powerful groom. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So you can give in to the seduction of the prostitute. You can keep scrolling through your phone at all the comfort and the pleasure and the popularity and the number of followers and the ease and all that, your, all that stuff that, that really revolves around your own personal reign and rule, your own personal self-importance and the, the, the prostitute through all of that stuff that's coming at you convinces you, yeah, this is what you just keep scrolling a little bit longer. Just keep hitting the purchase button a little bit longer. Just look at one more picture. Just do one more thing and you'll spend your entire life chasing it. You'll never find it. You won't find it. She'll dangle it in front of you until you share her fate when the beast finally devours her. That's what will happen to you. This whole thing is a bait and switch. That's John's point here. That life, it's going to turn on you, just like the beast one day is going to turn on this woman. Okay, I mean, sex isn't the only alluring thing here. We've talked a lot about power, haven't we? Really, if you get back in those earlier chapters, chapter 13, chapter 14, the, the warning isn't so much about the allure of physical pleasure. It's about the allure of power, the allure of influence, uh, the allure of you know, me being comfortable and having everything I need in this life and, and compromising my faith even if I have to do it. Um, but let's talk about sex for just a moment because it's not out of view here, is it? It's not. How much has our culture overpromised us when it comes to sex? You ever thought about that? I mean, you just, this, is, this is what we're told now, okay? That, that sex is the end-all, be-all pleasure point of your life. The real issue is either you're not having enough of it or you're not having it as you would prefer to have it or you're not having it with whom you would prefer to have it. Really, really, the only thing holding you back is all these repressive rules of culture. And so the ideal is this. You identify as whoever or whatever you want to be. You sleep with whoever or whatever you want to be. You, en you enjoy that freedom and you, you find your identity in that freedom, right? We even have labels for this stuff now. 
your whole identity wrapped up in it. And you will discover unspeakable, orgasmic, nonstop pleasure. Now, I've been married for 28 years. And my wife and I, we, we read or look at the news or we see these kinds of messages coming through. And every once in a while, we'll just, we'll just look at one another and laugh. Because we've been married 28 years. And it's like we look at each other and go, are any of these people even having sex? Like, honestly, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's fantastic, but it's a horrible God. It is a horrible God. And yet that's what we treat it like, don't we? What the culture promises that that is going to deliver for you, it's redonkulous. It's completely unrealistic. And yet, what happens? All right, dangle, dangle, dangle. Let me keep following, keep following. A little more deeper, a little more deviant, a little more this, a little more that. And you keep chasing it, you stay hypnotized. Listen, Gen Z, born from roughly 1998, 1999, up to around 2010, first global generation, so much hope there for just completely obliterating racism and other kinds of things that have plagued us for years. But I'm going to tell you where our enemy has them. It's in this area right here. 24-7 access to whatever they want. I'm not saying they're the only generation that's, that's fighting this. I am saying they're the first generation that has never known a world without it. Never. Ubiquitous pornography use, new levels of deviancy. Listen, and I want, I want you to hear me well. I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. I talk with people all the time, people in this church family, people not in this church family who deal with various kinds of sex addiction. I talk with mental health professionals that are part of our church family who cannot fit enough time in their schedules for these people. I know it's a crisis. We love you. We're going to walk alongside of you. We're going to be compassionate to you. We are not going to judge you. So don't hear this statement as individual judgment. Do hear me speaking to the reality of the situation. We have, it has gotten so bad, it's going to take a Holy Ghost sent revival to get us out of the moral sewage we're in right now. But there is another choice you can make. There's another life that's available to you. You don't have to live in Babylon. You can live in the New Jerusalem. All right? Again, yeah, no literal woman, no literal beast, no literal ocean, no literal cities. What are these? These are symbolic for two different kinds of lives. You can be part of the bride of Christ. But here's the thing. You, you cannot have both. You can't. And right now, you're on a side. You're being challenged to this very final vision before the next time we pick this up after Easter and we actually see the literal return of Jesus. Before that return happens, there's this one final challenge. You better make sure you know where you stand. Babylon or the New Jerusalem. You've got to pick one. You cannot live in both. You can't spend the weekends in one and the week in another. That's, that's, you don't split between homes we, we love thinking that's an option in the Western world, don't we? I mean, that this, this world is full. I mean, everybody's a Christian. But you know what that means? They tack it on to everything else in their life. I mean, we love that. My life is, well, it's really about my business. It's really about my children. It's really about my success, my self-image, the number of followers that I have, the way, the way getting things exactly how I want them. And then, of course, every once in a while when things work out, I throw one up to Jesus publicly so he can get some recognition because, after all, Christian is part of who I am. And then on, a, on other occasions when I have trouble, I, I throw his name up again so he can take the wheel. Paul said to live is Christ. That's what it means. Is that you? So let me offer you some questions here just to help you assess. Because I can't answer that question for you. This is one of those you, you are before God on your own. You, you don't need a mediator. On the other hand, no other mediator, but Jesus is going to help you. So if you want to know which side you're on or which side you're leaning toward as you kind of sit there in this moment, let me, let me give you six questions to help you assess. And the first one is this. Do you love because you are loved? Do you love because you are loved? Now, I, 
I love you guys. I do. I would. I. I, I think I could say, with full integrity, I, I would give my life for this congregation. I love you. I love the assembly of God's people. I love my children. I even love our staff. I do. No, they're great men and women. I, I love watching them. I mean, when they're on, it, it is amazing what they do for the body of Christ. But there's not a person on this earth that I love like Amy. Not a single person. Like, and all our children know this too, by the way. If you, like if you just had your first baby or you're about to have your first baby, we got a lot of babies coming around here. I, that's, I'm kind of excited about that. Mostly because they're not mine. I don't have to change diapers, but that's another, yeah. Um, but, but it's like, okay, um, my kids know this. Make, make sure your kid growing up knows that. Hey, you feed them, you give them what they need, you give them the emotional support you need. But let it be ever before them, gentlemen, this is my bride, she comes first. It's the best thing you'll ever do for your children. It's the best thing you'll ever do. Yeah, they're going to whine sometimes. Yeah, they're going to think they're being neglected. Yeah, they're going to think, what are you doing? Above all else, you're giving them a secure home. You let them know. I, my kids know that. Mom gets it. I mean, I've got a daughter. I love her. I spoil her. Every once in a while, I'll buy something for her just because she sends me a text and says, oh, these shoes look really cool. And it's right there like Amazon buy. And it's so easy. And then Amy will look at me and go, you are a sucker. Like, you are such a sucker. And, and, but, but Gracie's not my bride. That woman's my bride. Okay, now why, why am I why am I saying all this? It was just because so I can get sappy on a Sunday about my wife. No, it, it's marriage in this world, which only lasts in this world. It terminates upon death. Okay, your Mormon friends are they're great neighbors, I'm sure, but they're dead wrong about this. It's not eternal because it is a shadow of something greater. Listen to what the bridegroom says about his bride. Okay. Do you feel that from Jesus? 1 John 4, 9 says, we love him, or we love, actually. We love, in general, because he first loved us. See, otherwise, my love is going to be conditional. It's going to be, are you like me? Are you like we, Sociologists have this thing called the homogeneous unit principle, H-U-P. And, it, and it's simply a, a sociological observation. It's not a law. It's not saying what is or what ought to be even. It just says, generally speaking, a sociological fact is that people tend to like to hang out with people who are more like them than they do people who are not like them, okay? Which means, if that's true, Joel prefers hanging out with overweight white dudes in their 50s, right? Who pretend that we've still got our athletic agility. That's why. So I, whatever that means for you, right? We we just we kind of gravitate toward that. The gospel is is a call, at least to some degree, to fight that, right? It's not a sin to have that there. Uh, it, it's a sin to to perpetually give into it. And, and so I, if I, it, how how do I love somebody who's a different skin color than me? How do I love somebody who came from a different culture than I did that I don't understand? How do I, God, Lord, how do I how do I love somebody I can't even talk to? Their language is different than mine. How do I speak? Oh, here's what, this one may have relevance. How do, I, how do I love somebody who voted for the other guy? There's only one way you can love that way. Because he first loved you. And before you can extend that love to others, you've got to feel that. Okay? So that's the question. Do you love because you are loved? Do you feel that from Jesus? Because if you belong to him, you are a part of his bride. Number two, as a result of number one, are you secure? Are you secure? There's this saying and ends up on a lot of napkins at weddings from Song of Songs chapter two. My beloved is mine and I am his. So it's the bride talking and she's secure. Remember when Amy Bird was with us about a month ago and said, you know, it's kind of interesting. We, not, not only is the bride not fearful of the groom, she rushes toward his chamber. She longs to be like, that's a picture of a better world. That's a picture of something else that's coming. And it brings security, okay? And, and so just ask yourself, am I secure? Is it reflected? Like if people were to ask about me, if I were to ask your coworkers, your family, your spouse, 
are, are they frenetic and panicky and unsettled? I mean, all of us would say, yeah, on occasion. But like, what, what if you have a spouse and say, all right, spouses look directly at me. I don't want any of you to get in trouble. But, but, but what if the spouse went, oh, dude, all the time. Like, it, I, I, love, my, I love my woman, but it's nonstop drama. I love my man, but he is always outraged about something. He's always mad about something. I, like, I, I just, we, we just had that, I may as well confess, we had that discussion yesterday. My wife leaned over on a bed, gave me this really sweet kiss. It softened me up. And she said, I love you, you old curmudgeon. I'm not going to tell you the behavior that prompted it. I just wanted to let you know that happened. Um, You remember what you see here? It has been granted her. Okay, You can live knowing that the bridegroom has taken care of everything. You can live knowing that you're going to show up at the wedding and when you get into the chamber, he's going to be there holding the clothes. He's going to dress us. He's going to make us ready. And then he's going to be with us forever. Are you secure? On that basis, do you live secure? Number three, are you faithful? Are you faithful to Jesus? Fidelity, I mean, among other things, just means you wouldn't dare be found in bed with a competing lover. And and when you start playing at this level, the reason for that is because Jesus deserves everything. He will not share you with other ambitions, so you're going to have to pick. You're going to have to pick. Number four, are you repulsed by sin? Okay? It's one thing. See, here's what happens. There's guilt and then there's shame. And guilt often brings shame. And shame is not of God and it is not from God. Okay? There's even a famous preacher that keeps tweeting, shame on this, shame on that group, shame on it. I'm like, have you ever read your Bible, dude? Shame doesn't come from God. So don't call yourself a man of God and start dishing out shame to people. The gospel removes shame. It removes it. Now, it also it, the reason it can remove shame is because it also removes guilt. Okay? So when we talk about hating your sin, we're not talking about hating you because you are not defined by your sin. At least you don't have to be. You can release that part of you. It can be absorbed in the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. You can be forgiven. You can be free. That's the essence of the gospel. So when I talk about being repulsed by sin, I don't mean self-hatred, okay? I do mean hatred of the things that keep you from being everything God intended you to be. Do you see it like God does, okay? The allure of temptation to the death and decay that lies behind it. And so it's, again, Graphic language gets used to describe this. Ezekiel employed a similar harshness that actually makes some of the language we've looked at here in Revelation seem kind of calm. I'm not even going to read it to you, but I'll give you the reference if you want to look at it later today. It's Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 21. Don't read it after you eat. Ezekiel 23, verse 21. It is almost x-rated and it's shocking and for some of you you're going to read it and you're going to go I can't believe this is in the Bible don't try to be more holy than your God or you're going to miss the point I just can't because some of you you'd be like man pastor I, I, I went home I read that it made me nauseous that's the point You should feel the sickness of sin without anesthesia because God loves you so much, he wants you to feel it so that you'll run from it. Are you repulsed by it? Not just by the language that you'll see there, but by by the sin that that language represents. Are you as repulsed even by the prospect of rebellion as your God is? Question five, do you long for his coming? Chapter 19, verse 7, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I have officiated at a ton of weddings in my time. And I've done them in church buildings. I've done them outdoors. I've done them at event venues. I've done a couple in my living room. 
they're all different. They're all different. But one thing is there's just one common denominator in every single one of them I've ever officiated, and that's this. Once the date was set, the only thing the bride could think about was the date. I don't know if you've had that experience or not. That was, in my experience, that's every single time. All right, we're going to get married June 15th. We're going to get married October 6th. We're going to get, and, and then that's it. Like, that's the date. And it's all about, right? Now, there, there are godly and ungodly forms of anticipating that date, right? I, I didn't know you could, by the way, I, until I got married myself, I didn't know you could dye shoes. I, I, I didn't know it was a thing. I'm just saying. Uh, so you learn about all this stuff. And, and but but what what are we looking forward to? The moment when I when 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 I the church doors open and and there's my man at the end of the aisle. All right, and and he felt that anticipation too. But the focus here in Revelation is not so much on the groom, but on the on the disposition of the the bride. This part of it anyway. You set a date. You move toward that date. Now, there's a place where this metaphor breaks down. We can't set a date. Okay. I love y'all, bless your hearts. Some of you, and not even that many of you, but there are some of you, one of these days, the Holy Spirit is going to inject enough common sense into your three-pound fallen brain, and you're going to stop that foolishness. Oh, he's coming back in September. You know, he's coming. No, he's not. Well, how do you know? Because you just said he was. <laughs> That's how I know. All right. We're not talking about setting dates. But here's, here, here's what we know. We know the date's been set. We know it's been set. And so are you singularly focused on that day? As each day ends and another one begins, and we get closer to that moment that's about to be described, where's, where's our focus? Do you long for it with the cry you see at the end of this book, at the end of chapter 22? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And then number six, are you inviting others to this supper? How many of you have family that you want to see there, but you don't know if you're going to? Coworkers, friends, you don't know which side of this they're on. Every time we take a new crop of people through Discover Mission, which is the very first thing we do to introduce folks to Covenant, we offer them the opportunity to put an app on their phone called Life on Mission. It's a three circles. Some of you went through small groups right before covid and we're trained in how to do that. It's, it's, I still use it. It's on my phone. I, I don't, there's, I, I cannot remember a time where I didn't ask someone if I could go through that with them, and they said no. I've shared the gospel so many times, very succinctly, just using that three-circle diagram. And if that's something you want to know about, send us a message, put one in the, in the, the thread, send us a Send us an email, a text, whatever. This week, let us know you want it. We'll get it to you. We'll show you how to download it. It's free. It's free. Later on, we'll provide subsequent training in how to share your faith. Our youth went through this not too long ago, how to share your faith. You're like, well, I don't like using that stuff. Well, that's fine. You better use something because you have people who need to be around that table one day. And as you prepare for the coming wedding, how many invitations have you sent out? How many people do you, you, you know, here at Covenant, we believe the Great Commission applies to everybody. All parts of the Great Commission apply to everybody. Who do you want to baptize? Right back there. Get that vision in your mind. Start thinking about who you're going to invite to the wedding. How many invitations have you sent out recently? You know, I thought over and over in preparation for this message, those two very kind of stark contrasts, Babylon, New Jerusalem, about a, a similar text kind of tucked away in 2 Corinthians. It's in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. It says this, those who are being saved among those who are perishing, one to a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. That's a reference to the entrance of a conquering king into a vassal state that his army has just occupied. And in the ancient world, a surrounding population would often line the road off with flowers. And as the king rode through, it gave off this wonderful scent. The ones who wanted to try to hold their ground and rebelled, those already conquered, would instantly be put to death. And there would be another kind of smell 
That's the gospel. There is a king. He has conquered. He is sovereign. And one day, he is coming. And for you and me and every other human being who's ever lived, that day is either going to smell like death or it's going to smell like roses. That's the gospel. Do you insist on living in Babylon knowing that that day is coming? Because before that day, today and every other day until that moment, there's a gracious king. This conquering king is gracious and he's offering you an invitation. You can be washed clean. You can have your life changed. You can be supplied the clothing for the wedding. Come to Jesus. And maybe today that's some of you. That the Holy Spirit has woken you up through this imagery and you're like, geez, oh, that was nasty. I can't believe I was with her. And you've woken up maybe to a reality that you've tried to keep one foot in Babylon and another in the New Jerusalem. It is time to pick a side. And there is a side you can pick. Man, how glorious it's going to be if you just have the faith to believe and to wait until you see him. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity to share the greatest news in the world. I know that it's often backdrop with the bad news of why we need such good news. But Lord, it is because you love us that you leave us such complete instruction in your word. And as our elders and deacons are beginning to move toward the crosses now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin to move and that his work would include the convicting of sin, would include the, the, the drawing of people to the message of the gospel, and that today we would see people turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. Today we would see people who are already part of the bride, but they've been sinfully trying to keep their feet in both worlds, pull it all over, throw all in, give everything to you. Change hearts and minds in these next few moments and beyond. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.